Lord, we are grateful for the chance to be in worship today. We're grateful that you, Lord, want to be near to us, and you ask that we would draw near to you and that we would seek after you. And Lord, we're thankful that we're the kind of uh, creatures, human beings that you want to have around you. Even with all of our flaws and failures, Lord, you desire to have a relationship with us, and we, Lord, are so blessed, Lord, that that's the case, and we ask that we would live in such a way that we are thankful for that. We ask that you would be with all those who are on the ladies' retreat this week. Just ask that you would fill the rest of their time together with uh, the presence of your Holy Spirit, and Lord, just uh, give them the strength and the energy and the uh, blessing that they need to continue with the lives and the callings that you've given each one of them. We thank you for the leadership of all the women in our church and in churches uh, throughout this country and the world. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, Christianity would certainly not exist if it wasn't for the preaching and the leadership of women. And Lord, we are grateful for that, and we think of that especially today. Lord, uh, we ask that you would be with the family of Pam Locke, uh, who, is pa- who passed away, Lord, and we ask that you would surround them with the knowledge of your love and your care. We thank you for Pam and her light and witness for you. Lord, we ask uh, for all those that we have in our mind who continue to have health issues, for Larry, for uh, Rick, and for Rose, uh, Lord, for um, the, George, and Lord, we just ask that you would surround their families, Lord, uh, with the support that they need as they care for them in difficult times. We ask that you would heal them through the power of your Holy Spirit and that you'd surround their families and their lives with, Lord, the peace that uh, is needed to bear up under difficult circumstances. Lord, uh, we just ask throughout our world, Lord, that you would bring peace. Lord, we ask that you would bring comfort and relief for those who are affected by Hurricane Lee. We ask for those that were affected by the earthquakes in Morocco And, uh, Lord, the flooding in Libya, we just ask that you would surround them with your love. Help us to see how we can uh, support them and and come alongside them in this time to bless those who have lost so much with a little bit of what we have. And, Lord, we ask that we would be near to you today and follow after you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, just want to remind you as we get started with uh, the the message today that uh, we do have alabaster. So if you want to grab one of our little alabaster boxes and fill it up with uh, any change that you've been collecting or any bills, uh, that's what we'll do this week and next week. We'll collect for alabaster offerings. And we had a neat experience with the alabaster offerings when we were in Guatemala because uh, the first place that we went once we arrived was to the seminary. And the seminary there is the first building that Alabaster Offerings ever built. So that was very neat to see. And it's, it's a really nice building, a lot of good classrooms, and does a lot of great work. And we got to experience the benefits of that work as we worked with uh, Air Bear and, um, and also uh, Melvin, uh, who Melvin was attending the seminary and Air Bear was a graduate of the seminary. And so uh, we had a chance to see how great the seminary does at preparing workers to proclaim Jesus. And the building only exists because of the faithfulness of folks like you to give to Alabaster. Uh, So Alabaster offerings help build infrastructure, buildings, places of centralized ministry in countries throughout the world. And it only happens because of our faithfulness to give. So it was really neat to see that. Um, I wanted to also just mention to you real briefly, coming up after Alabaster Offering, you'll begin to hear us start talking about our faith promise giving, which is our mission giving. And uh, I'm excited because this year, last year, we were uh, so blessed that we went way beyond uh, what we were asked to do from the denomination for missions giving. So because of your faithfulness and your responsiveness to hearing about missions and what God is doing through missions throughout the world, 
we had about $1,500 more than what we originally had planned to have. And so this year, we decided to be ambitious, and we will, we're going to uh, try to give an extra $1,000 to two missionaries in the Dominican Republic, and then we're going to have photos and videos and, and some, uh, some writings from them. They'll, they'll talk to us about what those funds are doing and help us get uh, invested in seeing what they're doing in ministry in the Dominican. Uh, so Elba Dusan and Wendy Carolina are the two missionaries there. Speaking of women in leadership, uh, they're doing amazing work in the Dominican Republic. And so that'll be part of what we're doing when we talk about Faith Promise. So I'm very excited about that and wanted to share that with you as we get ready to talk about our missions giving. All right, well, today we are uh, finally headed into the New Testament, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 13. And I left my notes back here, so I'm going to grab my notes. But Acts 13 is where we're going to be today. Uh, we uh, looked at the Gospels together for Easter, and so we're finally now moving our way into the rest of the New Testament. Very important person in the rest of the New Testament, of course, is the Apostle Paul. So we'll get to see some of the beginning of his ministry today. I'm going to try to take you through the whole chapter, so I won't spend a ton of time in each section. But I think the whole chapter gives us a good sense of what the Gospel of uh, what God, what Acts is about. And the reason I just said that is because for uh, for uh, a person who's just reading through the New Testament, you should probably see Acts as the fifth Gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts is really the second part of Luke because what Luke is telling you when he writes the book of, A of Luke and then goes into Acts is that the works of Jesus did not stop when he died on the cross and ascended into heaven. In fact, the work of Jesus had just begun, and that's made clear in all the other Gospels. Jesus is constantly looking at his disciples and saying, what I've begun, you will do even greater things because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That's made clear for us in John chapter 14. It's made clear for us throughout the book of Luke, but especially at the end of the book of Luke in chapter 24, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, you know all the Old Testament law and prophets, they're all fulfilled in me, and now I'm giving the responsibility of what I want to do in this world to you, and the Holy Spirit's going to enable that to happen because of his power resting on you just as he rested on me. So the book of Acts helps us look at the question, well, what do you do after Jesus isn't physically on earth? So Jesus has changed everything about the world. The Son of God who came and lived as a human being like us, who died as a human being like us, like we do only, like the worst of the worst died. He's, he died the death of a convict. And because of that, every single person knows that they now have access to God. But then, of course, like no other person in the history of the world, Jesus rose from the dead and was was alive again and everyone could interact with him and see him, that God had given him victory over death. And because of that, we all have hope for uh, victory over sin and over death through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives who brings us the life of Jesus. So what happens after Jesus isn't there any longer? And what we see in Acts is that we have an imperfect community. It's not a perfect community, but it's an obedient community, a community that says, what do we have to do next to follow Jesus. Even though he's not here, even though I can't see him, where is he going and how can I be a part of what he's doing through his Holy Spirit's presence in our lives? And that's what we'll see today uh, in the uh, book of Acts chapter 13. The church is all about following the Holy Spirit's lead and so should we be. All right, so Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to start off. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The two of them, 
sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So I, I love this little first little picture into the early church. Antioch it becomes the main center of the church at this point. It, of course, began in Jerusalem. There's a very strong church in Jerusalem. And we know even that church shows up in uh, outside biblical literature. Josephus talks about James, the brother of Jesus, who was a holy man who led the church and was respected by everyone in Jerusalem. So you have to have this understanding. James and Peter to some extent, because Peter starts going off and doing missionary journeys. So James is primary, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then Peter and Paul begin to be leaders of churches throughout the Roman Empire, beginning with Antioch. And one of the things you may know about Antioch is that it's where Christian <coughs> followers of Jesus first began to be called Christians. So Christian meaning little Christs. So people would look at these Christians, these people that follow Jesus and say, oh, they're little versions of this Jesus guy we've heard about. They're trying to be versions of him. Sounds exactly like what we want to be, right? We want to display Jesus to others. We just... A bunch of us in the church just got shirts that say Jesus lives in me on the back because we want people to know when they're interacting with me, they're not just interacting with Quincy, they're interacting with Quincy and Jesus living inside of Quincy, accomplishing his will inside of Quincy. From the very beginning, that's what the church was all about and people recognize that. And it happened in Antioch. That This is the first, what you might want to call, mega church. This is the big church that takes place. They're taking over the whole town of Antioch and Antioch is, is the central place of of um, market and, uh, and trade. Everyone kind of goes through Antioch as you're heading from uh, Greece to Asia, from Asia to Israel and Egypt. Antioch is one of those places that people oftentimes go through, and so that's where the Christian church is taking off. Now, we have to understand that it seems like the leaders of this church at least included Barnabas and Saul. And from what we know about Saul... He's probably one of the most popular preachers and, and one that everybody there wants to hear. And why is that? You know the story, right? Saul was trained uh, up among the best of all the Pharisees. He had the best training that anyone could offer. He was a rising star in the particular political and religious uh, community that the Pharisees represented. And he comes to Jerusalem and he sees that there are these followers of Jesus who are proclaiming what he believes to be a heresy, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God who died and rose from the grave. And Saul says, I don't see that in the scriptures. How can that possibly be true and he becomes the leader of the opposition to the christian movement the first person kings have tried it political leaders have tried it but saul's the first person who makes a dent in the christian movement and begins to send all christians into hiding but then of course jesus gets a hold of saul on his way to damascus to try to stamp out another place where christians have sprouted up and, and started a church paul is knocked off his horse by jesus who appears to him and says Saul, I have chosen you to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And it's, it's such an amazing moment because you have to realize Saul, uh, as he tells you in, in the book of Philippians, 
Saul is all about everything that God has said in the Law and the Prophets. And the one thing we know is that Gentiles aren't right with God. Gentiles, if they want to be like Jews, they need to change a lot about their lives. All the men need to go be circumcised. All the men need to go follow all the laws. All the women have to go and figure out what the laws say. They have to get everything right and come to the temple and, and be accepted as Jews. And even then, they won't be allowed to be in certain parts of the temple. They can go in certain parts where the Gentiles are allowed, but not in the inner parts where only Jews and the chosen people of God are allowed. Saul believes all of that stuff. And the Christians that are out there proclaiming Jesus, that doesn't sound like what Saul knows. And he's resisting all that. But Jesus comes to Saul and says, I've chosen you to proclaim who I am to the Gentiles. Your whole life is chosen people of God, the Israelites, the Jews. And I'm going to choose you particularly to proclaim who I am to those who are not Jews, those who are not Israelites, those who are not part of the chosen people, because I've now called them in. And Saul, to his credit, I don't know, I don't know about you, if, if I had one direction for my life, and I probably have a direction right now, and, and I was confronted by a heavenly vision that knocked me off my horse and struck me blind, I'm not sure if that would be enough for me to change everything about my life. Maybe it would, but I feel like, you know, giving up every direction you've had and all the plans that your parents had for you and all the expectations that your peers and your teachers put on you and giving up all of that because of one moment, one momentary encounter with Jesus, even as impressive as that one encounter is, there's at least some doubt whether that would be enough. But for Saul, it is enough. For Saul, it is enough. His whole life changes and he knows once he's seen Jesus, everything is different. Everything I once thought yesterday is no longer true. This is true. This, this one is true. He is God. He is the Messiah who's been promised. And everyone needs to know. And just as aggressively and, and obsessively as Saul was devoted to stamping out the Christians, he now becomes completely devoted to spreading the message of Jesus. And everyone hears about this, right? If you're going to go to the church in Antioch, you want to hear Saul talk because you know that story. He wanted to kill all the Christians. He wanted to get rid of all the Christians and put them in prison. He is trained as much as anyone can be trained in the law and the prophets, just the head of his class. Uh, he's a seminary professor uh, of this particular belief set, and he abandoned that belief set for this Jesus who encountered him, and he believes this Jesus is the Messiah, and he proclaims it in every way he lives. Let's hear Saul preach. So it's important for you to understand that and when you come to the church in Antioch, imagine you find yourself, you've heard about this, you, you find your way maybe on your, your trip of, of uh, uh, selling or getting connected to your business in, in Rome or in Athens. You stop in Antioch to hear Saul. And, it, and what this chapter tells us is that at some point, Saul and Barnabas aren't there anymore. And Barnabas is important because he's the one who discipled Saul. He's the one who came alongside Saul and said, well, I know you wanted to kill me at one point, but I believe you. and I'm going to help you out, understand more about Jesus. So they're both very important, but they're no longer there. Because one day, the church had a meeting. They were praying. They were asking the Holy Spirit to speak to them. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul because I want to send them somewhere else to proclaim the gospel to other people. So this is very much... Like, in, so in this church, I'm your pastor, so this is like us having a meeting and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit just speaking to us and saying, I need Quincy somewhere else. And we'd be like, well, um, he's kind of useless, but, you know, he preaches every now and then. That's kind of helpful. Uh, so we've got to find somebody else. We've got to find somebody else to preach. We've got to find somebody else to visit people when they're sick. We've got to find somebody else to, 
uh, you know, help uh, Chelsea get his kids ready to go to church, which I uh, feel pretty miserably today. But anyway, uh, the, somebody who will help, somebody who will help get the, uh, the fill in that situation. It'd be crazy, and we'd say, Holy Spirit, is that really what you said? Maybe if you really said it, just text it to my phone so that we know for sure. Maybe send me a sign, like open up a hole in the roof. Now we already have that. Uh, but open up a different thing going on in the church and let us see who you are and what you really said this because we're not totally sure. But even more so, I mean, even more so than our example, this, this is a big church. Think of any of the big churches that you have. I, I think... I don't agree with, uh, with all of his theological perspectives, but I think Alistair Begg is a great preacher, and I think he, his church does some amazing work. Imagine if they, if they told his church, hey, uh, if the Holy Spirit told his church, hey, Alistair isn't needed anymore here, we need to send him to Guatemala, or we need to send him to Libya after the floods that they had. Uh, that would be tough to hear, but I love how in this passage, and I promise I won't spend this much time with every single section here, but this part is really important to understand. I love how in this passage, when the church prays and, and the scripture says the Holy Spirit said, the word for said is very much, very clearly the word for just said, like I said to you. If I came up and talked to you today, it'd be the same word. And he could have used a word that said proclaim. He could have word, uh, used a word that said, uh, you know, declared. But instead, it's just a conversation with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit makes clear through prayer, this is my plan. And the church's response immediately is to say, yes, whatever it is, Holy Spirit, you want. Take away our leaders. Take away our, our superstar preachers that everybody's coming to hear because you've got a plan and we want to be in on it. And that's a picture of the early church obedience no matter what the cost no matter what the disruption no matter what the change because if jesus is going there i'm coming too and no one's going to hold me back beautiful thing a beautiful thing all right let's continue reading uh, obedience to the early church verses 6 through 12 they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, just a couple of historical notes about this passage where we see some opposition come against Saul and Barnabas. And against the early church, against the missionaries, those who are sent out to proclaim the word, we're going to see that being a continuing pattern if you read the book of Acts and also if you read Paul's letters. Just a couple of historical notes. In this passage, you see that Saul's name changes. He goes from Saul to Paul. And so Paul is his Greek name. Paul is the nickname that they would call him when he was in Greek circles. And we know that, that Paul, Saul, Paul, he was trained uh, in all the ways of the Israelite people, but he also was fluent in Greek he was probably fluent in Latin. He was fluent in mul multiple languages, and he was a Roman citizen. So his family had a lot of standing in the Roman Empire. We don't know why, uh, that he had all the rights of a Roman citizen. He was well-trained in all the, the circles of the world. So when he comes in here, it, he is now going to be called by his Greek name. It's probably a good reason for that, because the Greek word that would be associated with the name Saul, Saulus, essentially meant effeminate. 
<laughs> so, so Paul, when he goes out and he says, ah, what kind of name you want to call me? You know, they, they, were, they would call him Saul, which would mean sissy. So he's like, okay, I don't want to be called sissy. I want to be called Paul. And you're like, okay, when he chose Paul, probably Paul means manly or like strong or like uh, cool, right? Paul means short. That's what Paul means. So that tells us something about tells us something about Paul that when he went out there and people were encountering him, he was probably not a tall man. Uh, he, and that's what the only things we know of people. Uh, that's that's how they described him. He went bald apparently early because you know people go bald. I'm going to go bald. But Paul apparently went bald early enough where people are like, okay, bald's one thing we're going to associate about him. The other thing we're going to associate about him is that he's short. Interesting that that would show up to you, right? Because the only thing that you probably knew coming into Paul here is that he wrote half the New Testament, right? And he's a center point of Christian theology to explain what it means to be a follower of Jesus even though you never saw him, you never were in his presence, but you're following through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul has spoken those words to us through all the centuries. And think about 1 Corinthians 13. Think about Romans chapter 8. Think about all these amazing passages that we're going to be able to see together as we go through Paul's letters. This is who he was. And because of that, no one thought about the fact that he was bald early and he was short because they wanted to hear what he had to say and what Jesus had done in his life. And that all pops up for you here in this passage. Another thing that I think is cool is that for years, people would say, why did Luke choose this weird word to describe the leader of this island, Sergius Paulus, um, as proconsul? And then later on, archaeologists discovered a variety of coins of the proconsul Sergius Paulus in Cyprus, because Luke is a very good historian who gives you the accurate name for a leader of a particular island. It shows us an example of how he can be trusted as a historian. All right, so this, this story comes up. Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel, and, and people are listening to them, but they're opposed by this Jewish sorcerer. And we know that in those days, from other writings, that uh, there were Jewish sorcerers around. A, a leader of a city, or an island in this case, or a nation, would say, oh, uh, the Jews, they have a special connection with their God, so let's hire someone to help us get the favor of that God. And these Jewish sorcerers came in, who obviously are not things that God wants, but they took advantage of the situation to get some political power, some money, that kind of thing. This guy comes there, he sees that Saul, he sees that Paul, I can call him Paul now, not together, but actually Saul, Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming this message that's going to mess with his industry, and so he tries to stop it. And I love what Paul does here, because what Paul does is something that he only does in this spot in all scripture. Nowhere else does Paul curse someone. Uh, does Paul say, hey, here's a punishment inflicted on you. This is the only time he does it. It's early on in his ministry, and it makes total sense to me, because do you remember what happened to Paul? Saul was on his horse heading to Damascus, Jesus appeared, knocked Paul off his horse, and struck him temporarily blind. So when, when Paul sees this Jewish sorcerer opposing God, he says, it worked for me. I'm not only the promoter, I'm a client too. Try some blindness on for size, and maybe you'll see what God wants you to see. And I just love that picture. And it looks like maybe on, later on he decided maybe that method wasn't tried and true for everybody. But here in this minute, he says, try it on for size. You're not seeing. Help me. To, I'll help you understand that by making it so you literally can't see. So that in this moment of temporary blindness, you can see the God who's reaching out for you that I'm proclaiming. And because he does that, the whole uh, surrounding area, the proconsul, they understand that this Jesus is real. He's present and he's active. And they begin to believe. All right, let's keep reading. 
Uh, verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Persia and Pamphylia, where John, that's John Mark, by the way, John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving his land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of, John, of Jesus, John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham, you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised Jesus from the dead so he will no longer be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestor and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. So I read that whole long section just so you could get a glimpse of the basis of the message that Paul and Barnabas and the early Christians proclaimed. And this passage gives us the sense of that. They began in Jewish centers of worship, where people who were part of the chosen people of God, who knew the Old Testament and knew the prophets gathered to say, let me help you understand how everything you've known and believed your whole life has led you to this point of seeing who Jesus is and responding to him in faith. And it's beautiful how they lay it out in this passage. Obviously, there's a couple times they reference scripture. There's about five or six, depending on how you count it, different scriptures they bring into their sermon. Uh, and the overall point that you can't miss at the end is he says, 
forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through Jesus, he can set you free from sin in a way the law never could. And what a beautiful message that is. It's an indication of who the Holy Spirit is, like we read at the beginning of the service. Uh, Peter, as soon as, as, as the Holy Spirit is poured out in Pentecost, says, understand, this comes from Jesus. God has exalted Jesus to his right hand and poured out the Holy Spirit through him so that you can experience being free from sin and set free to follow him. And that's what Paul and Barnabas proclaim here. And it, it's beautiful in the passage, too, how then immediately after that, the whole city gathers, right? Everyone's excited to hear about this. this it all makes sense to them. Everything that they've wondered about their whole lives, these prophecies they've wondered if they ever come true. Well, it must be true if this person died on a cross and rose from the de dead because no one who's crucified ever comes back. That's a way to make sure someone is dead and real dead. No one would go to that point unless they were trying to demonstrate something about uh, love and, and what God wants us to know in this world. No one would choose to proclaim a crucified man as Lord unless he rose from the dead and demonstrated that fact by appearing to those who knew and loved him before. And that's what Paul's saying. And this person standing right in front of me, Barnabas, probably one of those who met Jesus during that time, is saying, this is what happened, so it must be true. Everything I've wondered about my whole life and believed, it all makes sense in the face of Jesus, and everyone in the whole city wants to hear it now. But, of course, the problem is, it means that some people are going to lose some power, and some things are going to have to change. I'm not going to be able to sit in my favorite pew. You guys don't have that problem, but a lot of times in churches there is that problem. Like, I don't want, to, I don't want people sitting where I usually sit. I, things are going to change if we go this direction. And I'm not really sure I want to lose everything that I've had before to gain something new, even if it's better. And so people begin to resist. So let's read the rest of the passage here. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Again, a nice image here of what happens over and over as a pattern as Paul goes and preaches. Opposition comes up. They kick him out of the city. Paul responds without violence, without anger, uh, and just you know shakes the duff off his feet. One time, they stone him. He's left for dead. He just gets up, brushes the rubble off, goes to the next town. This is his, this is his style. This is Barnabas and Paul in the early Christian style. We're going to go and proclaim the word of God no matter what the consequences and if you reject it, we're just going to move on to the next town and let those who want to believe continue in that faith community. We'll send back letters. We'll send back representatives. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the New Testament so that we can continue to support the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in your community. But the idea here at the end of the passage here is that everyone who believes is filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Um, isn't, it, isn't it great that Luke chose to say these two things as what defines a person who follows Jesus, a person who says yes to who Jesus is and who Jesus has proclaimed himself to be. It's joy and the Holy Spirit. He could have said righteousness. He could have said self-control. He could have said patience. Uh, he could have said, uh, you know, holiness. Any of those things would be appropriate. 
But here he said, the people that, that stuck with it, the people that experienced eternal life, the people that experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, their life was defined by joy. That, that finally all my questions were answered. Finally, the purpose of my life was given. And finally, I know forgiveness of sin and freedom from the power of sin over my life. And it's going to give me joy. Uh, I hope today could be just kind of a, a brief introduction to you of the early church and what the early church was all about and Paul and his message. Over the next few weeks, we'll go into Paul's letters. We'll look a little bit deeper into what he said and how it defines who we are as Christians. But what I'd like to ask you today to think about as we close is just think about, is my life defined as somebody um, who is full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit? Full of joy because the presence of Jesus is in charge of my thoughts, my actions, my attitude, my words. Jesus is in charge, and because of that, my life is full of joy. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for uh, this great book that introduces us to so many of those who said yes to you, even when it was so hard, when it required changing everything about their lives, saying goodbye to what was past and hello to whatever you had for them. Uh, Lord, help me to live in that place. Help me to not resist you because it means everything's going to change. Lord, help me to desire freedom from sin so much that I'll surrender anything, anything you ask of me, to be faithful to you, to experience your Holy Spirit taking over my whole life and filling me with the joy that only you can provide. Lord, we ask that as we uh, close in worship today, as we sing uh, the song together, Lord, that you would fill us with joy, fill us with the Holy Spirit, and help us, Lord, to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're able, please stand with us and join us in our final hymn.